Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. Today, we're so glad to welcome our colleague, Dr. Jen Sita, who's going to be speaking to us about the world of digital therapeutics, the amount of evidence and support that we really need to drive a successful launch in this space, and really the promise of equitable care that we really heard about from our last conversation with Dr. Sharif Terabin. So welcome to the show, Jen. We're so happy to have you here. Oh, great to be here. So for today's episode, we did want to kind of build on the conversation that we had last time with Sharif, uh, the CEO of Cognoa. He really talked about AI and medicine and the digital medicine space broadly. One of the things that I was really hoping that you could start us out with is helping to break down what a digital medicine is, what a digital therapeutic is. There's a lot of um, buzzwords in the industry around it. So if you could maybe help demystify that as a starting point, I think that'd be great. And I think uh, Sharif had started this conversation of talking about digital broadly, that we shouldn't be scared of the word digital. That's a huge word. Digital impacts our lives all the time in every way, including in medicine. But if we're just talking about a little bit more focus down to the digital medicine space, that's a kind of a broad umbrella term that's used to incorporate, encapsulate several different areas of where we typically think of in digital medicines. It can span everything from a digital biomarker, which we heard about from uh, Chris at Conexa, which is really just measuring different things and can be used as endpoints and eventually maybe clinical tools, all the way to Cognoa uh, and other some of our other clients that are really focused on digital therapeutics, which is a digital platform used to treat a disease, a modify a disease, and that's mostly what we think of. So some people just kind of simultaneously use digital medicine, digital therapeutics, but we have biomarkers, digital diagnostics to diagnose a disease, and digital therapeutics to treat a disease. That's a really helpful overview. And when we think about that space, um, I think there's also some confusion or some buzz as to, are we really thinking about prescribing a cell phone app independent of other drugs? Is it going to replace the need for a drug? Is it going to complement my drug? Is it going to replace the need for my therapist in certain circumstances? So I know there's a really wide range of how these products can be used, but can you give us some examples of things that you're seeing and hearing about in the space and um, maybe even just some of the efficiencies or value that we see being brought to the industry? And I think kind of a baseline for this conversation is that digital can kind of help what happens between doctor visits or between office visits. Office visits don't happen on a daily basis and that would bankrupt the system anyway. So they're talking about the efficiencies that can be built of what can digital help with when somebody's not necessarily right in front of the doctor in the office or a healthcare provider. So a lot of efficiencies built in being able to tap into that time outside of the office. And that can be kind of a range of things from helping with adherence to a medication. I think there was just some data coming out that a companion app, which is kind of a, a helpful, literally a companion to a drug or a product that can help make that more effective. So that this one app was uh, found to be helpful in helping people adhere to their diabetes medication and to maybe some of their lifestyle choices that actually helps make the drug more potent. So that's something like a companion. It can be something that can be used in place of medication. And uh, you know, this concept's been around for a long time of even things like folks using meditation and guided imagery to reduce uh, pain post-surgery. 
And now what if you had an app to help kind of drive that be more efficient or effective or for a substance use disorder or in some of these um, ADHD or even in autism, can we, can we use the actual digital, whether it's an app, which is usually software as a medical device, can we use that to help change, help somebody either change a behavior, how they're thinking about something, the actions that they do that can actually help improve and change the course of a disease. So it can and therefore be used as a, as a uh, companion to help drive adherence, which is more like alongside with a medication, can be used in place of a medication, such as uh, some of the efforts we've looked at that can help maybe treat symptoms of anxiety and depression that maybe can happen before somebody gets to the point of needing medication, or it can be a bridging approach where you can use a digital app to help in the time before medication takes effect or during a wait time to get to see a specialist. So there's a few different, definitely a whole wide range of how people are thinking about how to use digital therapeutics. So Jen, I mean, this is, this is great. Thank you for sharing that. There, there seems to be a potential for changing the standard of care and how care is being delivered with digital medicine in general, whether it's biomarkers, digital biomarkers, digital diagnostic, digital therapeutics, as you mentioned. I mean, collecting the data in real time, right, and pulling that also, running that against an AI pattern that has already been validated and bringing those two together, it's, it has tremendous potential. Where do you think we are with the, realizing this potential in this whole spectrum? Uh, I know that overall healthcare is usually lagging behind adoption of technology. Uh, where do you think we are in this spectrum and, and where do you see us going? You know, I feel like we're at the tip of the iceberg of just starting to see the results of, of efforts. And I feel like it's that perfect time where we have the computing power uh, that has been developing over the last few decades into being able to kind of really crunch these large databases and come up with identifiable patterns alongside of one of the huge barriers was not having electronic access or completely um, completely imposed EHRs or EMRs where you couldn't even access the data. So the fact that there's data access available, there's a lot more data available just from folks using digital day-to-day -day life. And we have this huge computing power and a lot of folks investing in this space over the last few years, I feel like it's just starting to come to fruition of seeing some of the results of that. But again, I feel like it's the tip of the iceberg because I just uh, feel like we're still figuring out how to get these reimbursed and paid for, how to integrate them into the clinician workflow, how to get clinicians and patients comfortable with feeling like this is, should be a part of their day-to-day -day lives or day-to-day -day practice. So I think as that starts to change, we're going to see this watershed of uh, new technologies that are really changing the course of medicine for folks. I think one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of, and, and Jen and I have the great opportunity to partner on a lot of our, our digital therapeutics and digital diagnostics work kind of broadly in this space, is that many of these organizations are just trying to figure out how do I create enough evidence to support changing the practice of medicine. And Sharif spent a great amount of time talking about this potential that um, medical school curriculums are starting to change and the expectations in residency are starting to change. But there hasn't been classical training on what to do with all of this data and information. And personally, early in my career, I did a lot of digital and analytic strategies for hospital systems, trying to figure out what to do with information so that it doesn't become additional noise when we have incredibly busy physicians that don't have time to think through what does this really mean for my patient. And so 
creating really simple and ingestible information that can be really used to help guide clinical decisions and can help give great visibility into what's happening for the patient at home, whether it's you know in a monitoring type setting or even in a treatment type setting for us to be able to show and demonstrate to the medical community that these products are working. And in some circumstances, the evidence for digital therapies are so strong that they're working better than the standard of care. Um, we, we're working with some organizations that have been able to go through the FDA, the software as a medical device uh, regulatory process that Jen was referring to, and they're bringing such compelling data that the standards of care have just frankly been archaic and nobody's really tried to think about disrupting it because it just works and the prior options were cheap and why change it? Um, but that's not the best option for the patient. And so we're seeing this huge patient demand for better options and um, more accessible options that they can use at home. And now it's been our job to really think about what is the evidence base that's going to move the needle for these stakeholders to really accept it, which I've personally found really fun and interesting, uh, but it has a lot of corollaries to a lot of early work that we've all done, whether it's in gene therapy and some of our earlier guests kind of broke some of that down, but really changing the practice of medicine has been fundamental to our ability to think about successfully launching any of these. Kim, you, you're talking about this like tension that completely exists with like the pace of which technology develops compared to the pace, the pace at which society's ready for something new to the completely archaic, slow pace at which healthcare changes. And I think you're talking about a good point about how much evidence may exist, especially to get it across the regulatory finish line. But sometimes products and these developers are not thinking about how is this going to integrate into clinician workflow today and not 10 years from now. And I think that's something we really try to coach a lot of our clients through is early on in your development, are you thinking about how is a clinician or the wider healthcare system going to be able to implement this today or tomorrow, not five years from now with the system the way it is now. We can't change that overnight. Uh, healthcare has always changed pretty slowly. And I think some people are naive of how quick technology can be developed and how quick a consumer market's ready to take it up and not thinking about the wider medical ecosystem that exists that needs to kind of all come along together to make it integrated and successful. You both talked about access for the patients and how these technologies have the potential to bring the medicine to the patient quicker, faster. Uh, what about the payer's perspective? What are your thoughts on how are payers dealing with digital medicine overall? Well, I would say for a few years, they just weren't. They were doing kind of everything in their power to not uh, deal with it. That's not entirely fair. It's a very different, it doesn't fit into any really traditional uh, benefit category. And you see, I think almost half of digital is now being if they are covered, covered under medical benefits, some covered under pharmacy benefit. So again, it's trying to fit into a system that really isn't evolved to look at something as advanced as digital. So, uh, and I think just to take a step back, developers are starting to think about payers now. I think, you know, the product developers in different, uh, in different uh, companies were thinking about how do I just get across the finish line for regulatory? And now they're realizing that's just step one. Step two is how do I get this reimbursed and paid for? And how do I get clinicians reimbursed and paid for? And that's, I think, where you see a ton of effort, ton of discussion, a lot of DTX, a lot of the big conferences are focusing on how do we demonstrate value and get this across the payer threshold. And I also want to make sure that people know there's that third piece of how are we going to drive clinical pull through at the other side. And all of these stakeholders need to be considered when starting to develop a product. But to your specific questions about payers, uh, you're seeing, I think it's, 
nine out of 10 payers have evaluated a digital in the last one year. Uh, so it's, it's coming, it's there, they're looking at it. I wouldn't say there's a really good blueprint of how to get successful reimbursement yet, but it's coming and I don't think payers can kind of ignore this anymore or just continually ask for more evidence because as Kim said, the evidence base is getting stronger. It's having to figure out how to deal with a different class of medicine, not dissimilar to gene therapies, which are also a completely novel way that payers have to view a potential one-time curative therapy and uh, not necessarily knowing the lifetime durability, but how do we pay for a one-time potential curative instead of a monthly or annually or any other type of medicine administration? So I, th I think they're getting a little bit more agile and starting to, to, to realize this. You're seeing some guidance come out and some, some policies come out around digital. Kim, I don't know if you have any other experiences you want to share. Yeah, I think one of the the best resources, and, and Jen and I are, are pretty plugged into this group, but the Digital Therapeutics Alliance and and their CEO, Andy Mulner, has done a really great job over the last few years um, kind of building up this really great membership base that's been supporting massive policy changes to support digital therapies and bringing those to market and, and supporting uh, lobbying to payers as well to really get these products on their formularies and to come up with a standard way to evaluate them. Jen, Jen alluded to this, but each payer is still trying to figure out even how to appropriately assess these products. And so every single product that comes through is essentially a net new process for the organization to determine who is it going to go to? Is this durable medical equipment? Is it a pharmacy benefit? Is it a medical benefit? And everyone's kind of charting their own path rather than saying, Broadly, everything in the space will kind of go through this central triage, and, and this is the process and, and the way that we're going to evaluate and determine the appropriate flow for decision making. And so I think payers are absolutely getting more mature, but manufacturers are as well. And, and Jen and I have been having a lot of conversations really for the last few years, and we're seeing um, we're seeing changes in the industry kind of more towards this messaging, but really thinking about all of those stakeholder groups as early as your feasibility study design well before you're thinking about designing your pivotal trial. Early on in, in the digital medicine space, especially since it was so nascent and funding was fairly limited, organizations were really thinking about, let's pour the money that we need to, minimum viable to get this across the regulatory finish line. We didn't even know if FDA and EMA would um, approve these things, let alone what the potential of a, a launch would be. And so it was really, let's get to the closest possible milestone that we could cross that threshold. And now they're really seeing that FDA has charted this really clear path for how to be successful, but we haven't figured out the steps after that. So um, organizations who are relatively newer to the space or who are bringing new products are thinking about all of those other stakeholders much earlier in their process. They're being really thoughtful about their clinical development plans. They're bringing in health economics from day one to say, what are all of the potential outcomes that we can measure now so that we have a very compelling value story that we can embed that in our narrative early on. And we can really start to engage the medical community in the earliest stages so that they're partners in our development and that they're not going to be surprised that there's kind of this new product or this new offering that just frankly seems weird. Like the idea that I'm going to prescribe a video game to treat ADHD is confusing or you know, a VR headset, like, I don't know how to use that kind of thing. There's um, a little bit of demystifying the concept and the data behind what we're building. And organizations are doing a lot more work earlier on in their life cycle so that they're really ready for these successful launches, which 
you know, we see this in traditional pharma, it, it takes time. We really need to kind of build that evidence base and really build that commitment in the medical community over a number of years. And uh, the timelines in digital are just much more truncated than the seven to 10 year cycle that we're seeing in, you know, a traditional um traditional development life cycle. You know, Kim, you bring up a, a point and a question that we get asked a lot. And it's, do I need a regulated product? Do I need this product to be FDA approved? So from a manufacturer perspective, should I keep this in the wellness space, meaning direct to consumer, doesn't necessarily need the blessing of the FDA, is not going to get reimbursed, but really kind of falls in that space, but we can iterate really, really quickly on it. We can get it to market really, really rapidly. We can get a lot of real world evidence. And or do I need to go down or uh, am I really treating a disease and I want to claim the outcomes of treating a disease? Do I go down the FDA regulated path and then get into these hurdles that we're talking about of thinking of the payers, your value proposition? How is it going to integrate with clinical workflow? So there's kind of these two worlds. And interesting, we're seeing more companies even not necessarily bifurcate either or, but trying to do kind of both simultaneously is can we develop the wellness product, get our hands around it, figure out the best use cases, and then identify where we can actually go after a specific disease. That's a challenge because you're basically building two companies at the same time, one that's really, really rapid and quick and iterating and direct to consumer, and one with very, very firm guardrails on how you market and communicate, and you're not allowed to iterate on the product once you've submitted it. That's the product you're going with. So it's kind of this interesting tension and thing that we're seeing in the industry industry now as well. I can relate to some of the things that you were saying, both of you were saying with gene therapy, right? And I know we, we all have experience in gene therapy, very disruptive therapy. Payers didn't know exactly how to manage it. Regulatory, we were still dealing with all the unknowns. Uh, companies were trying to figure out, well, what do we do with the, with the data that we have? The timeline was definitely shortened and truncated. You know, we get approval with 10, 15, 20, 20 patients rather than years and years of you know, hundreds of patients. Uh, a lot of similarities also that I, I hear from both of your responses with regards to also gene therapy and digital medicine. But where do you think the, the future will be for, for digital? And, and, and even while you're answering that, also thinking about the personalized health and integrated health that everybody talks about and everybody is kind of aiming for. Does, does digital therapy and medicine has the potential to advance that and, and how? I mean, I think this will become as ubiquitous as our, you know, our, everybody has digital devices with them pretty much 100% of the time. I, I bet everyone now has a phone within, within reach. Uh, a lot of folks wearing, doing the wearing wearables uh, to measure various health things. So you're seeing a lot of that drive in the consumer space. And I see that uniting with a digital merit medicines therapeutic space and being able to integrate and marry so that folks can actually understand and become empowered to know the most about their, their own self and how they respond to things and which medicine might be most appropriate for them and uh, how they can maybe change their behaviors and tailored to their genetics, like all of these kinds of things together that can be partners alongside their clinicians and the healthcare system that can bring some of that expertise to help kind of guide. Because we've kind of seen, again, that in two different worlds where Folks are doing their own research, they're gathering their own data, they're making their own medical decisions, sometimes in absence of a clinician, sometimes that goes great, sometimes that doesn't. And then you see clinicians kind of operating on almost a separate system and they're trying to integrate you know, AI, whether it's reading a radiologic file and helping interpret the data. So I'd love to see those can come together and that's where I see this going is how do we create the interfaces 
and the appropriate handoffs that um, and in the, any patient individual can be empowered to know the most about their health, but they feel that the healthcare system is a partner in this and they don't necessarily have to pay out of pocket for anything. And that to me also gets to that access question that you're talking about of equitable healthcare and you know needing to bring those payers along. It can't just be direct to consumer, having smooth ways that it's integrated into the healthcare system, easy access for folks that they don't need the latest and greatest iPhone or whatever that is to be able to access these new, new therapies. Yeah, I think it's an important point, Jen, and um, I won't quote them directly, but I'm, I'm sure this person knows who, who they are. But one of the digital therapeutics manufacturers that we've had the opportunity to work with earlier on in my discussions with them, the first thing he said is, I have no interest in commercializing something that's only for rich people. And there's this huge, huge need to bring these therapies to wide, wide audience. And unfortunately, People who probably need these products more are disproportionately not able to get access to them. And there's been so much work by the industry as a whole, not just digital therapeutics manufacturers, but they're really committed to achieving this purpose of providing wide and equitable access to this care. And it goes back to the earlier discussion we were having about moving the needle to payers. Unfortunately, getting government payers... Um, to kind of change their evaluation and um, change their decision-making takes a lot more time. And until we're really able to move the needle with state-based Medicaids, we're really not going to be able to provide as wide of access as the industry hopes. And we're seeing some really creative pricing models to best try to address some of those things in the near term. But the really, to me, the long-term potential is that these are really covered products that any child anywhere who might have some of these things that otherwise wouldn't get to the large academic center to get the specialty ADHD care from the pediatric neurologist who specializes in these things will have access to treatment somewhere. And we don't have to worry about their parent or caregiver taking off work to refill their prescription in the middle of the day or you know, being concerned about their ability to pay for dinner because they had to pay for a copay. For their medication. There, there can be alternative options that can be at the click of a hand and can be available at midnight. You know, if the child is depressed and is, is having a hard time, there's other options that can really widen um, our ability as a healthcare community to support people and, and children and, and patients where they are when they need it most. True. We just were having conversation literally yesterday with one of our manufacturers of how ideally perfect their solution is and how huge the unmet need is in the veterans community, yet how difficult it is to change a large bureaucratic government system to be able to know how to integrate and how to pay for it. And so I'm, I'm again, I'm hoping this is the tip of the iceberg and these systems will figure it out. And once they start to figure it out, it'll be so easy to add new ones. We're just early in that, in that journey. So I, I do think this has the possibility and will actually fulfill more equitable care, but we just aren't there in integrating into the systems and getting the payers on board yet. Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been an incredible discussion and a really fun one for me. It's definitely an area I spend a lot of time and I'm very passionate about. So really appreciate you joining and, and talking to us about the potential of this space and looking forward to seeing what's to come in the new year. Sounds great. Thanks. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at ssistrategy.com. 
Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.